paranoia is in bloom The PR transmissions will resume They'll try to push drugs to keep us all dumbed down And hope that we will never see the truth around Another promise, another seed Another package lie to keep us trapped in greed You see the green belts wrapped around our minds And endless red tape to keep the truth confined Welcome. Welcome to the Tori Says Show. Today is October 1st, 2021. It's quite different to the October 1st we had in 2020 and quite different to the October 1st we had in 2019 and 2018 and 2017 and 2016. I know I have been victim of saying that history does repeat itself, but it's not the history you know. It's the actual plan that they implement. I think it's important to uh, dispel some things. History does not in itself repeat itself, but it does instruct the ways that you can avoid tyranny from reoccurring. And that's what's important. So the one thing, the only way that tyranny stays and man maintains it's power, the one way, the first, outmost way, right? Because there's a few ways, is by abandoning facts. See, when you abandon facts, you're abandoning your freedom. In order to be free, you must believe in truth. You must understand what truth is, and it simply is. So by abandoning facts, you, in turn, abandon freedom. And in order to do that and to be a free person, once you embrace the facts, you investigate, you figure things out for yourself. <laughs> in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. In the age of the internet, everybody's a publisher right? So share it. Take responsibility for what you share around the world. Now, many people have taken advantage of that and monetized it, not used it for the simple fact of sharing information or what they found to be true because they take no responsibility. And here's how the tyrants win. They have trained you to think that you are immune on the internet, that you do not affect, yet you do. And I think over time and looking back, you can see that yourself, that in fact, what you say on the internet does influence people. What you do does. And boy, you are definitely not anonymous. Now, this comes back to the first thing I said, which is embracing the facts and believing the truth, because if nothing is true... And no one can really criticize power, now can they? See how they do this? Nothing's true, so you can't criticize us because it's not our fault that we just don't know what's true anymore. So therefore, you are not allowed to criticize power since nothing is true. And if nothing is true, then it's all a show. It's a spectacle. Now, huh, I fail at this sometimes, but language is important, right? 
we must remember when to hold our tongue. Though when we're angry and over, what is it called? Righteous indignation. We do use the word fucking shit and hell in this, right? But slogans, slogans and repeating those slogans, slogans and repetitions are what fascists use, okay? They use those slogans in repetition to reject opposition, right? You use reposition, repetition to object opposition. And then once you have that repetition in your slogans and you repeat it and you repeat it, repetition to squash your opposition, then you spread it through this new media that we have, which is now propaganda. So interesting. So you make, if you make an effort to separate yourself from the mainstream media and you're on the not so mainstream media and you read books and you learn history and you understand truth and truth is the only thing that you'll see. And that's how it works. So you have to watch out for the repetitive language. You have to watch out for the slogans that they have. Because all they do is repeat, build back better, build back better. I already showed you. This is how they plant it and disseminate it. In this age that we're all publishers, if we took responsibility for what we shared with the world, it would be so much better. But in order to be free, Aside from knowing the facts, understanding the truth, understanding the language used by fascists and the methods, and understanding the responsibility we have as individuals as what we share and how we share it. Well, it all comes down that we must be ensuring that institutions that uphold truth must be defended. Now, defining an institution would be, you know, you know, a righteous thing. You have to choose what institution you believe you care about the most that can deliver the truth, that can give you the remedies you need. So you must pick an institution, maybe a court, or you support that the judges stick to Article 3 and stop bringing politics in, and you try to protect that. You believe that press should be free and the, and therefore you refuse to allow press to have interests, global interests for advertising because, oh, we just need money. We're not really controlled by them. Stop. Stop. Choose nonprofits or something and you take their side, right? Now that's what the fascists tell you that they do. But in actual fact, what is it at the core? What kind of institution, right, do you want to ensure is upheld and maintained? Your churches? Well, that's gone. Your freedom of the press? That's definitely gone. Your media access? Totally gone. The only thing that is left is the Constitution of the United States of America, and we would call that institution the foundations of our nation. And that's what's really, really important. Really important.
It's very important. And to be able to do all that in order to resist tyranny, once you've selected your institution, which is your foundation of your nation, your constitution, once you've ensured that you're careful about the language you use and you make sure that you are responsible for what you share and that you only focus on the facts, the actual truth, then the last thing you need to do is stand out. Somebody has to. Somebody has to stick their neck out and be loud as possible. Remember what Rosa Parks said that time? I don't know if you guys had seen that old footage when she got that uh, medal for diversity or whatever down in New York and she was with Donald Trump. Donald Trump actually got the same medal as her, as Rosa Parks. You know what she said? The only tired I was, was tired of giving in. Are you not tired of giving in? Are you not tired of letting them tell you what to do? So I had a conversation with someone that I used to work with today. She was very brief. You know, so that way there's no tap. <laughs> Tori. You have a lot of enemies. And this is where I was inspired by Churchill and said, that's good. That means I'm standing up for something. You should try that sometime. That's actually how we ended the conversation. And I think everyone should remember that. You should be tired of giving in. You should be tired of bending the knee. And if you make enemies, then so be it. Those enemies are the ones that are forcing you to bend the knee. And what people need to understand is every single one of us, Set an example. Set an example. The, the, the status quo, you know, oh, status quo, um, you know, oh my gosh, optics. Do it. And I'll tell you what, others will follow. Because there are many out there, just like you and I, who are tired of being tired of giving in to everything who don't care what the status quo says or wants to say, who don't care, you know, what they think is the way to go or optics like Charlie Kirk, not letting certain independent journalists turn up because optics, or I won't talk to this person because optics Well, fuck your optics because others follow and they're tired too. And once you realize you're tired of giving in, Tired of bending the knee. Oh boy. At that point, you're completely unstoppable and they can't do anything. Right now, our nation is at a point where this selected, stolen seat, this usurpation of government, they usurped our government, have placed someone that pretends to be Joe Biden, announcing a national COVID 19 vaccine mandate on many employers. Now I did tell you when I was in DC, oh boy, they're upping these fines. So that way they can usher in the, the vaccine and no one's going to want to pay 700,000. And that's going to be the employer's excuse. I'm sorry, I can't pay 700,000 as a fine. Now many Republican governors have threatened lawsuits, but they haven't done anything. But the employers of the mandate hold the most ground to sue. Like the employers themselves can sue and they're not. Pay attention. That's because they're the ones ushering this in. You understand? 
They're the ones ushering in. So what is a mandate? And can a mandate be enforced? That's a question. A mandate is an official order to do something. And that is a power to act that voters give to their elected leaders. Now, we never elected him. So therefore, he has no power to do any mandate. But it's not a law. It's just a power to act on something, to do something. The one way that they can apply this as a law and force people, right, and create a tyrannical America, no longer the United States of, of America, is to go through OSHA. In order to go through OSHA, they first have to up the fines and then strong arm OSHA. It's the only way they can do it. Oh, and by the way, you know, for those of you naughty, 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 naughty people that um, have seen my Twitters from a long, long time ago, you'll see that I was working with OSHA at some point. I believe that was 2014, 2015, where I contracted with them and did something. <laughs> Be very surprised what we've got in OSHA slaves. So OSHA sets safety regulations for businesses. That's what their job is, right? And they are trying to force OSHA to give in. Now that would be preposterous. That would be against everything, against everything. Businesses, businesses who don't comply face fines of 14,000 today. Tomorrow, if this, if the bill that they want goes through, it'll be millions, right? Millions. Uh, public health experts have pointed out um, to the Supreme Court uh, for a 1905 uh, justification mandating vaccines. Which which some mean that the states have ultimate authority over public health mandates. Okay, stop. So in 1905, Supreme Court case made mandatory vaccines okay because the states have authority over public mandates. Are you paying attention to where we filed our writs? Okay. That's important because they have public authority. But I'm going to tell you something. I've read this 1905 case, and I know that the people that have filed to the Supreme Court have cited law that would allow them to go back and fall into it. They've done it wrong. Punishment for um, not getting a vaccine is a really, really dangerous area to go to, a compulsion of your citizens, a compulsion of your citizens that do not want to get vaccinated. It is tyrannical. It is horrific. And what people forget is, it's not the first time it happened in America. And I'm going to take you back in time now to show you how Barack Hussein Obama in 2012 had ushered in point, sold you out. Do you guys remember that? I'd like you to take a listen. Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to say good morning, but I guess it's afternoon now. Um, as part of the healthcare reform law that I signed uh, last year, all insurance plans are required to cover preventive care at no cost. That means free checkups, free mammograms, immunizations, and other basic services. We fought for this because it saves lives and it saves money for families, for businesses for government, for everybody. And that's because it's a lot cheaper to prevent an illness than to treat one. We also accepted a recommendation from the experts at the Institute of Medicine 
that when it comes to women, preventive care should include coverage of contraceptive services such as birth control. In addition to family planning, doctors often prescribe contraception as a way to reduce the risks of ovarian and other cancers and treat a variety of different ailments. And we know that the overall cost of healthcare is lower when women have access to contraceptive services. Nearly 99% of all women have relied on contraception at some point in their lives. 99%. And yet more than half of all women between the ages of 18 and 34 have struggled to afford it. So for all these reasons, we decided to follow the judgment of the nation's leading medical experts and make sure that free preventive care includes access to free contraceptive care. Whether you're a teacher or a small businesswoman or a nurse or a janitor, no woman's health should depend on who she is or where she works or how much money she makes. Every woman should be in control of the decisions that affect her own health, period. This basic principle is already the law in 28 states across the country. Now, as we move to implement this rule, however, we've been mindful that there's another principle at stake here, and that's the principle of religious liberty, an inalienable right that is enshrined in our Constitution. As a citizen and as a Christian, I cherish this right. In fact, my first job in Chicago was working with Catholic parishes in poor neighborhoods, and my salary was funded by a grant from an arm of the Catholic Church. And I saw that local churches often did more good for a community than a government program ever could. So I know how important the work that faith-based organizations uh, do uh, and how much impact they can have in their communities. I also know that some religious institutions, particularly those affiliated with the Catholic Church, have a religious objection to directly providing insurance that covers contraceptive services for their employees. And that's why we originally exempted all churches from this requirement. An exemption, by the way, that eight states didn't already have. And that's why, from the very beginning of this process, I spoke directly to various Catholic officials. And I promised that before finalizing the rule as it applied to them, we would spend the next year working with institutions like Catholic hospitals and Catholic universities to find an equitable solution that protects religious liberty and ensures that every woman has access to the care that she needs. Now, after the many genuine concerns that have been raised over the last few weeks, as well as, frankly, the more cynical desire on the part of some to make this into a political football, it became clear that spending months hammering out a solution uh, was not going to be an option, that we needed to move this faster. So last week, I directed the Department of Health and Human Services to speed up the process that had already been envisioned. We weren't going to spend a year doing this. We're going to spend a week or two doing this. Uh, today, we've reached a decision on how to move forward. Under the rule, women will still have access to free preventive care that includes contraceptive services, no matter where they work. So that core principle remains. But if a woman's employer is a charity or a hospital that has a religious objection to providing contraceptive services as part of their health plan, the insurance company, not the hospital, not the charity, 
will be required to reach out and offer the woman contraceptive care free of charge, without copays and without hassles. The result will be that religious organizations won't have to pay for these services, and no religious institution will have to provide these services directly. Let me repeat, these employers will not have to pay for or provide contraceptive services. But women who work at these institutions will have access to free contraceptive services, just like other women. And they'll no longer have to pay hundreds of dollars a year that could go towards paying the rent or buying groceries. Now, I've been confident from the start that we could work out a sensible approach here, just as I promised. I understand some folks in Washington may want to treat this as another political wedge issue, but it shouldn't be. I certainly never saw it that way. This is an issue where people of goodwill on both sides of the debate have been sorted through some very complicated questions to find a solution that works for everyone. With today's announcement, we've done that. Religious liberty will be protected, and a law that requires free preventive care will not discriminate against women. Now, we live in a pluralistic society where we're not going to agree on every single issue or share every belief. That doesn't mean that we have to choose between individual liberty and basic fairness for all Americans. We are unique among nations for having been founded upon both these principles, and our obligation as citizens is to carry them forward. Uh, I have complete faith that we can do that. Thank you very much, everybody. What did Archbishop Dolan say, sir? He doesn't care. All he wants is his mandate out and you to shut up and do as you're told. But, you know, someone has to think, like, what is it that they're going to do? How are they going to fund all of this stuff? This is expensive. Well, you know, I've always said, we always test things out in places where they're pretty much done. Where, well, it's over, game over. I talked about this. But here it's time to revisit this chat I had with you guys uh, a couple years ago. Take a listen. With bank deposits flowing out of Greece at a record pace amid doubts about its future in the euro, the government in Athens has closed banks, limited withdrawals, and halted transfers abroad. These restrictions, a last-ditch effort to keep euros in Greek banks, are called capital controls. A government can restrict withdrawals from banks, limit foreign exchange transactions, or tax stocks and bonds purchases. In a financial crisis, restrictions on outflows give policymakers some breathing space to fix problems in their economies. 37 countries have used capital controls to restrict the flow of money out of their economies between 1995 and 2010. Sometimes capital controls seem to work, sometimes not. In the 1990s, during the Asian financial crisis, Malaysia recovered swiftly after imposing restrictions. But so did Korea, without imposing restrictions. And controls are neither foolproof nor cost-free. In Greece, controls are keeping money in the country. But they also scare off investors. Right now, Greece is in desperate need of investment to jumpstart its economy.
options are limited. If the government let banks operate normally, the financial system would run out of money within days, with savers rushing to withdraw as much cash as possible. That would almost certainly push Greece out of the euro area. And if Greece does leave the eurozone, capital controls can stop the clock until the country manages to print a new currency. Well, they should have done that when they had the chance, right? They should have. <laughs> they should have. Because here's what it meant for them. I want you guys to understand uh, what actually happened. Uh, you know, you're no longer allowed to deposit checks as of that time. Uh, it, th it's no longer allowed. Everything has to be electronic. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to People and Profit, where we look at how business shapes our world. I'm Marcus Carlson. Coming up. The Greek government puts its banks in the deep freeze. We look at what it means in the long term. Is Puerto Rico the Greece of America? Investors are getting nervous as the island warns it cannot pay back its $72 billion debts. Plus, streaming wars. We ask whether Apple could fall flat on its face as it muscles into the market for streaming music online. More on that later. First up, though, the Greek debt drama continues. But whatever happens in the short term, the dramatic decision to freeze the finance sector in Greece will be difficult to defrost. Capital controls have shut down the banks and limited cash withdrawals. The aim was to stop billions bleeding out of the lenders due to fears over the country's future in the eurozone. But there's concern that the controls will leave a lasting scar on the economy. Let's start by taking a closer look at what the government has put in place. A dramatic twist in Greece's five-year financial crisis after it was announced that capital controls would be imposed. The move was designed to spur the country's creditors to offer concessions on a 1.6 billion euro payment. So just what are capital controls? A directive released by the Greek Prime Minister on Monday outlined the key points. Daily cash withdrawals are capped at 60 euros at least until the 6th of July. Transfers to destination outside Greece are prohibited and require approval from a Ministry of Finance commission. And urgent business and medical transactions need the green light from a designated approval committee. Banks breaching the rules face fines of up to 10% of the transaction amount. With a number of cash machines already reported to have run out of bills and banks being closed for several days, the situation appears bleak. The move by Athens mirrors the one made by Cyprus in 2013. The government was forced to introduce similar capital controls after a banking crisis rocked the island nation. But looser restrictions saw cash withdrawals capped at 300 euros per day. It wasn't until April of this year that final restrictions were lifted. Let's get more now on the wider implications of capital controls. We can turn to Christian Jimenez founder and chief executive of the asset manager Diamant Bleu Gestion here in Paris. Uh, welcome to the program, first of all. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, I want to start talking about the pros of capital controls. What is the interest of a country to put capital controls in place? What do you gain? Yes, the interest for a country of putting a capital control in place is to, to freeze the, the banking amounts, you know, the banking deposits, uh, to avoid a bank run. Because without these capital controls, maybe the population will be uh, will want to to have his money on the ends rather than a banking account. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so it's really to to, to put uh, a potential banking run 
uh, out of out of the picture, so to speak. Exactly. Now, how draconian or not would you say that the Greek capital controls are? How tight or how loose are they? Well, as you know, the capital control currently in place in Greece is pretty tight because, you know, the amount of money uh, people can withdraw from its own banking account is very low, only 60 euros, very low. In Cyprus, it was five times more. 300 euros per day. 300 euros per day per person, per account. Uh, So the appearance of the capital control in Greece is that it is very tight. But this process begins so late, you know, after most of the population having withdrawn most of their banking accounts. So in practice, now all the cash is, you know, under the beds, and I don't know where in the houses, you know, so now most of the money is no more in the bank. So billions of euros have already slipped out of the bank, so to speak. The capital controls were, were put in place too late in Greece. Exactly. The European Central Bank injected 89 billions of euros in the Greek banks to allow them to to face the cash withdrawals. So it's very, very late to put this capital control in place now. How long do you think that the capital controls will be in place in Greece? My personal opinion is that this capital control will be cancelled very soon. You know, normally in the Eurozone, it is forbidden to set a capital control because the Eurozone It's forbidden, they say. Well, you know who actually did this really well? (laughs) Believe it or not, it was the Chinese. Let me show you how the Chinese um, dealt with it. Because China does this all the time. China has a hot new export market turmoil. The eyes of the world are on the Shanghai Composite and on the daily fixing of the renminbi. Sometimes that doesn't make for pretty reading. Martin Wolf is here to tell me his take on it. One possible solution that got put forward in Davos, Martin, was that tighter capital controls. This was the idea from Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda. Would this work? Is this a plan that can or is this desperate measures? I suspect a bit of both. I mean, China still has exchange controls. It's not a fully liberalized system. It's moving glacially, I think, appropriately to becoming a fully liberalized system. They could tighten the controls. And at the moment or at least indeed for now for quite some months, they've been losing foreign currency reserves at an enormous rate. They've lost almost $700 billion in the last uh, year and a half. And and even for China, which has $4 trillion of reserves, or had at the beginning, this is an enormous amount. So they can't really continue to do so. They're obviously doing it to try and stop the exchange rate from collapsing. We all want it not to collapse because it would create a big deflationary shock for the world. Mm. We really don't need that right now. Um, But on the other hand, they really don't want to continue like this. So what are the alternatives? Well, basically, in the short run, the simplest thing is to stop the the buying by Chinese people of dollars. Mm. And controls would do it. Obviously, we then have to get into the question of why are they buying dollars? Part of it is straight capital flight, I think. Mm. Uh, People are frightened about the anti-corruption campaign. Part of it is a lack of good investment opportunities as the economy slows and they've been investing far too much. And part of it is Chinese corporates trying to to redeem debt, which they contracted in dollars. And they now realize the dollar's rising, the renminbi is falling, it's getting more expensive all the time. And so this is what's going on. And some of that, the, the People's Bank could stop if they really wanted to. Why is this of a 
of concern to the Bank of Japan, though? Is it the exporting deflation angle that's their real problem, or do they worry about financial market turmoil in and of itself? I think that it's both, and I think that's true for everybody. There's a lot of concern now, pretty obviously, in the markets and among policymakers about what's happening in China, particularly since last summer when we had the sort of first bout of turbulence. It's pretty obvious that China is slowing quite fast, that the authorities aren't completely in control of this process. And among other things, though they're not so closely linked, there's quite a bit of market, market turbulence being generated by China. And part of that is capital outflow and the effects on the currency. And they're particularly concerned with the latter because China is the world's largest trading power. It's the world's largest exporter. If the currency were to collapse and money were really to flood out because people would be desperate to get out as they're losing the value of their currency, that could generate a lot of turbulence in the world, unpredictable. But the world is unbelievably delicate at the moment, Mm. as we can see. So that's the last thing anybody wants. And do you think what sort of message do you think tighter controls would give out? Is it? we've got this situation under control, or is it we're running out of ideas? Both, I think. Uh, the, everybody understands that the process of integrating the Chinese economy into the world economy, particularly on the financial side, is going to be a very complicated process, very difficult, with lots of risks associated with it. So now we're already in the world economy. So what economy is it that they're preparing us from? Uh, I want you to understand that, because when Cyprus went through this, they were being entered into a different economy economy, or economic structure. When Greece was going through this, it was going through a different economic structure. They were literally stealing people's money. Don't believe me. Listen to them. They are rationing the money and they are rationing the amount of customers who can go in at one time. About 10 or so went through those doors and had an initial burst and then you have this queue as they uh, go in for another group of people being allowed into the banks in Cyprus, one at a time at the moment, it looks like. This has been the longest enforced bank holiday uh, in European history, and it is now ending because the doors are open and the queues are forming. One gentleman has even bought a chair to uh, to sit on down here. <laughs> Sir, can I ask you, do you speak English? Uh, you've obviously come prepared with a, with a special seat for the queue. <laughs> How do you feel today? Why is it so important that you get Horrible. You feel horrible? Yeah. Shame. Shame to us. Shame to the people that they have stolen our money. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have words to say who is this gentleman on the seat trying to be a new Hitler. The blame is very much with the countries of Northern Europe, in your opinion, isn't it, I think? It has nothing to do with the North or South. It is one family, the United... The the, The European Union. The European Union. That's... They have... They they, they are jealous to stole our... petrol or gas, whatever it is, under the our seas take our money from the investment that Russians what is it that you want what is it that you want to talk to the bank about today to be honest to be honest against these poor people we are placing again their bloody money and I don't like to 
to, to, to live again similar kind of behavior. It's not, though, it's not. They have stolen our money. We are working for 60 years, 70 years almost. I am 80 years old. And I'm now working again for my living because they have cut the bloody whole lot. Our few money, our social insurances, they cut them. 50%. What are we going to do? How are we going to live? How the way we are going to live? It is, I don't know. I lived uh, in uh, in Belgian Congo about 20 years. And uh, I consider myself now in the position that these poor natives were living. 50 years ago. Terrible, right? Terrible. It's terrible. But see, I found this guy who shares some very nice information. Don't agree with all of it. Don't have to. But his perspective is magnificent. Banks could seize your money in an upcoming financial crisis. Huh. Sound familiar? I told you the unions have no money and you see it now. Social Security broke. And who cares? For the, for the housewives that get their husband's Social Security after they pass, how much do they get as a T, right? That's what they call them, Ts. They're not A. They have a T at the end of their Social Security number for their Medicare slash Medicaid, right? They get 300 bucks. What could you get with 300 bucks first? Mm. They're coming for your money. This is Sam Kwok here, one of the Kwok brothers. Now, you guys all know the term bailout, which is often used when governments basically give failing companies monies or loans because they are failing and they need to stay alive. Now, we've seen this back in 2008 when government bailed out many, many banks, which I totally disagree with. And a lot of these banks were, of course, making bad judgment and bad decisions. So like a free market guy that I am, I am not a fan of bailouts, especially when bailouts are being done on big companies and big banks that clearly have made their own bad decisions. And a lot of times they're playing games with the general consumers in the United States. But there is this other term known as bank bail-in, which is something that we haven't really heard of before and we don't maybe quite understand. Unlike a bail-out, a bail-in involves an organization's creditors, such as depositors and bondholders, to step in to help the organization. So in this video, guys, I'm going to explain exactly what a bail-in is in a very plain terms. We're going to talk about the countries that have used it and the aftermath of using it. We'll talk about whether the U.S. is headed to the same direction. And last but not least, we'll talk about how you can be protected from a potential bail-in in the future. So guys, after doing hours of research about this topic, let me break this down in a very easy to understand analogy. Let's say you go and deposit $1,000 into, you know, I'll say ABC Bank. And essentially, you become a depositor. And I don't know if you guys knew about this, but when you deposit any money into the bank, you're essentially giving the bank a loan. And if you're not earning any interest from that deposit, well, you just gave the bank an interest-free loan. 
And let's say a few days go by and the ABC bank that you just deposited money into has announced that they're failing and they're at the verge of bankruptcy. Now, what happens in a bail-in is that the ABC bank would basically say, hey, listen, your $1,000 deposit, a portion of all of that is basically ours, but in exchange, we'll give you a piece of our stock to our own bank. Now, what the bank is hoping for you to do is to go and take the stock and sell it in a third party or a third party exchange, essentially recouping your money. But a lot of times, these stocks are essentially worthless and they don't really mean anything. In fact, that's exactly what happened to the country of Cyprus back in 2012 and 2013. Following our own recession here in the United States between 2008 to 2012, this country of Cyprus definitely felt the ripple effect and had their own recession between 2012 and 2013. Now, things were so bad that even though most of the banks had their deposits insured up to 100,000 euros, 47.5% of all deposits over 100,000 euros were essentially seized and basically lost their money. And on top of that bail-in, some of the banks in Cyprus had to get a bail out from the European Union. So not only did they have to take money from their own depositors, they had to take money from the European Union because they just could not keep up and, and survive with the way it was. Now, ironically, Cyprus was sought to be a tax haven by many Europeans and US citizens, mainly because the corporate tax rates were really low, high interest rates on savings, and easy access to banking sectors throughout Europe. But unfortunately, due to the bail-ins and bailouts of 2012 and 13, many of the depositors have fled Cyprus and the trust with Cyprus banks have gone to all-time low. So let's go and bring this all back home to the United States. Now, you might be wondering, could this actually happen here in the United States? Are my deposits safe? Are we going to see a chaos ensued if this were ever to happen here at home in the United States? We have never tried the idea of a bail-in and few of us actually really talk about it. Our government bailed out 2008, 1, euros, 47.5 home in the United States. I want to pause that and I'm going to come back to it because I want to show you what a bail-in sounds like. You ready? Here's the bail-in. Let's go. Here is your bail-in. Other members of the committee, for the opportunity to measures we have taken to address the hardship wrought by the pandemic. Since we last met, the economy has continued to strengthen. Real GDP rose at a robust pace in the first, ha first half of the year, and growth is widely expected to continue at a strong pace in the second half. The sectors most adversely affected by the pandemic have improved in recent months, but the rise in COVID-19 cases has slowed the recovery. Household spending rose at an especially rapid pace over the first half. So he's saying that the economy is rising and it's magnificent. It's just perfect. But the rise in the economy is slow because of COVID. Do you see why COVID was so important to deploy? Half of the year, but flattened out in July and August as spending softened in COVID-sensitive sectors. Additionally, in some industries, near-term supply constraints are restraining activity. As with overall economic activity, conditions in the labor market have continued to improve. Demand for labor is very strong, and job gains averaged 750,000 per month over the past three months. In August, however, gains slowed markedly, with the slowdown concentrated in sectors most sensitive to the pandemic. The unemployment rate was 5.2% in August, and this figure understates the shortfall in employment, particularly as participation in the labor market has not moved up from the low rates that have prevailed for most of the past year. Factors related to the pandemic appear to be weighing on employment growth. These factors should diminish with progress on containing the virus. The economic downturn has not fallen equally on all Americans. 
and those least able to shoulder the burden have been the hardest hit. In particular, despite progress, joblessness continues to fall disproportionately on lower wage workers in the service sector and on African Americans and Hispanics. Inflation is elevated and will likely remain so in coming months before moderating. As the economy continues to reopen, we are seeing upward pressure on prices, particularly due to supply bottlenecks in some sectors. These effects have been larger and longer lasting than anticipated, but they will abate, and as they do, inflation is expected to drop back toward our longer-run 2% goal. The process of reopening the economy is unprecedented. As it continues, bottlenecks, hiring difficulties, and other constraints could again prove to be greater and more enduring than anticipated, posing upside risks to inflation. If sustained higher inflation were to become a serious concern, we would certainly respond and use our tools to ensure levels that are consistent with our goal. The path of the economy continues to depend on the course of the virus and risks to the outlook remain. The Delta variant has led to a surge in cases, causing human suffering and slowing the recovery. Continued progress on vaccinations would support a return to more normal economic conditions. The Fed's policy actions are guided by our dual mandate to promote maximum employment and stable prices, along with our responsibilities to promote the stability of the financial system. In response to the crisis, we took broad and forceful measures to support the flow of credit and to promote the stability of the financial system. Our actions taken together helped unlock more than $2 trillion of funding to support businesses large and small, nonprofits, and state and local governments between April and December of 2020. This helped keep organizations from shuttering and put employers in a better position to keep workers on and to hire them back as the recovery continues. These programs have served as a backstop to key credit markets and helped to restore the flow of credit from private lenders. We have deployed them to an unprecedented extent. Our emergency lending tools require the approval of the Treasury and are available only in unusual and exigent circumstances such as those brought on by this crisis. Many of these programs were supported by CARES Act funding. Those facilities provided essential support through a very difficult year and are now closed. The Fed completed its sales of assets from the secondary market corporate credit facility on August 31. We were able to wind down the facility rapidly and efficiently with no adverse impact on credit conditions. We also recently closed the PPPLF to new lending and are managing the paydown of assets in our other CARES Act facilities as they wind down. We continue to analyze their efficacy and to review the lessons learned. The Fed's actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Everything we do is in service to our public mission. We will do all we can to support the economy for as long as it takes. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Chair Powell. I now recognize myself for five minutes for questions. Secretary Yellen, your department reports that as of August 21, 7.7 billion in emergency rental assistance have been allocated to households assisting approximately 2 million renters. Although spending has increased over the past several months, I think we're all concerned that the pace of delivery of this critical assistance is not happening quickly enough. Can you talk about the challenges you have faced after taking over oversight of ERA-1 from the Trump administration? 
What do you believe are the most significant improvements to the program guidance you have made? And what impact have you seen? Well, thank you for that question. This is a critically important program that Treasury has been very focused on expediting the delivery of these rental assistance funds to those. Weaken our labor market. As the Fed considers its monetary policy, how will you manage the trade-offs between controlling prices and ensuring full employment? And how do you plan to resolve the tension between the two that you spoke on on Wednesday? That's the very difficult situation we find ourselves in almost all of the time. Yellen, thank you for finally taking the time to appear before this committee. I know that the ranking member has formally requested your presence at least twice within the last few months with no response. Last week, Treasury released the latest data on its emergency rental assistance programs. As you know, $46 billion was made available to supposedly help COVID-impacted low-income families pay off their back rent and to help make mom-and-pop property owners whole, whole in Missouri's 2nd Congressional District and beyond. After more than nine months and an entire summer of Republicans pushing Treasury, your own data still shows more than 83% of your funds remain unspent, while millions of renters and property owners remain stuck in limbo. It certainly doesn't sound, ma'am, like it has been a, in your words, expedited program. Now, I have a series of yes and no questions. Because my time is limited, I would appreciate and will insist upon a simple yes or no, ma'am. First, Madam Secretary, do you consider Treasury's emergency rental assistance program to be a success? Yes or no? Yes. Amazing. Are you aware that in December of 2020, when Congress appropriated the first $25 billion for emergency rental assistance program, funds were to be used by December of 2021, yes or no? Yes. Do you know why Congress set that initial deadline? To get, to get, make sure that funds get to those right. who are in need. To get it out the door to renters and landlords, ASAP. Madam Secretary, are you aware that just this past March, Democrats extended the time frame for emergency rental assistance program to the years 2022 And are you ready for this? 2025 for the two respective programs. Yes or no? Yes, there's significant need and it will continue. In 2025, ma'am, I continue. Does extending the program's deadline incentivize grantees to get funds out by extending this? Does Does it incentivize grantees to get funds out the door? Yes or no? We're doing everything we can, and the states and localities well, it's not fast are to get, it, to get it out the door. As I indicated in my opening statement, in response to a previous question, the infrastructure to do this had to be built, and the pace at which there was plenty of time for the infrastructure to be set. Our Fed, our Fed programs, our PPP programs, all of those expeditiously got money to people who needed them. This is a complete and abject failure. I'm sorry, Yellen. I want to read a quote to you from a Treasury official 
to journalists on September 24th, and I quote, to simply take the amount of money that has gone out in the first five or six months and then compare that to what was allocated for four or five years is just a meaningless number. Meaningless number. Secretary Yellen is getting money out the door as soon as possible. A meaningless gauge, particularly when we are talking about a pandemic-related eviction crisis, yes or no. Our objective is to get the money out. Well, it hasn't gotten I, out the door. 83% of it is still sitting sorry, in the one Treasury point, coffers. $1.4 million. Ma'am, because my constituents in St. Louis and I do not find it meaningless when we are talking about emergency assistance meant to keep individuals and families in their homes today during a pandemic, not years and years later out to 2025. Moving on. Chairman Powell, with spiking energy prices and bottlenecks in supply chains around the world, there are concerns that there is a rise in inflation may not be as transitory as you originally predicted. Given our current economic situation and the fact that Democrats want to pass trillions and trillions more in spending, what makes you believe we will not see more sustained higher inflation, especially when we've seen significant consumer price increases, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we do think that inflation will remain elevated before these supply bottlenecks, supply side bottlenecks are resolved. And we think that it will then move back down toward our, toward our goal. Time frame? Well, it's, you know, these are not things that we control. We don't control. Not very transitory, sir. It seems example. pretty dug in. I, well, I would say that it, this is, remember, this is a function of, of supply side bottlenecks over which we have no control. But I would say that we do expect uh, in the first half of next year to see some relief, depending on the bottleneck in question, and inflation should move down over the course of Not a time to be spending trillions and trillions of dollars. I yield back. The gentlewoman from New York, Ms. Velasquez, was also the chair of the House Committee. There's been two Federal Reserve presidents who have left, quit, retired, bottom line, uh, immediately leaving or gone from the bank of terms, um, certainly we could. And thank you. Let me shift gears a bit. In one of my recent telephone town halls, I asked a poll question to uh, those who were able to join me. It said, have you or your family noticed a sharp rise in prices for food, gas or electricity? And 94 percent of the respondents, and it was a good sample size, they said yes. Inflation is eating away at the buying power of every single North Carolinian. And bottom line, inflation is a tax on working Americans. So Chairman Powell, I know that you've called the inflation that we're dealing with transitory, and boy, I sure hope you're right. Um, but what would you tell people back in my district, especially those on fixed incomes, when they are struggling to make ends meet right now, what would you tell them? I would say that we are dealing with a, very unusual event that's really part of the COVID, the broader COVID event, that the economy is now reopening, that we're hitting supply-side bottlenecks. For example, it's hard to, hard to manufacture cars without, uh, without semiconductors, which are in short supply. So car prices are going up, and lots of prices are being affected by supply-side constrictions. We expect that those will abate, that they'll lessen, and over time, inflation will come back down. Exactly when that will happen is not possible to say, but I would say we should be seeing some relief in coming months and over the course of the first half of next year. I hope you're right. The folks I talked to back in North Carolina are doubtful of that, but I do hope you're right. The Chairman Powell, next question. So 
In a July hearing before this committee, you were asked about um, CBDC or the central bank digital currencies and their impact on stablecoin and other cryptocurrencies. And you stated, and I, I think I quote uh, you correctly here, you wouldn't need stable coins. You wouldn't need cryptocurrencies if you had a digital U.S. currency. So, Mr. Chairman, as a matter of policy, is it your intention to ban or limit the use of cryptocurrencies like we're seeing in China? No. And, and I, I immediately realized I had misspoken there. I didn't mean to take the word cryptocurrency out of that sentence. And I, and I would say it's fairly widely understood that central bank digital currencies could perform some of the some of the uh, could make. Uh, but no intention to ban less. Uh, no intention no, to ban. No intention to ban them, but they're you know the stable coins are are like money market funds. They're like bank deposits, but they're to some extent outside the regulatory perimeter, and it's it's appropriate that they be regulated. Same activity, same regulation. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you, the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Caston, who is also the vice chair of the sub expansion of the social safety net and climate change policies. Return phone calls. Uh, suppose for a moment it is October. The administration um, that was originally put forward um, requested some additional information, particularly about businesses and partnerships. Yeah. But there is no transaction level data for individuals being considered by this Congress. I want to point and out. Look, I want, you I'm, know, why is it okay to that we have businesses report um, wage and salary income? Or companies report dividends. I think or, I'm um, reclaiming my time. I think the information is it just, and that is going to right what you brought. This is deeply concerning to them. So forgive me if I won't go back to them and say, "Don't worry." Despite all evidence to the contrary about their past history, the federal government really means it this time when they say they're going to respect your privacy. When they intend to build firewalls around this enormous database of personal information to them. And by the way, what you brought up, we're doing it for a really good purpose. We're doing it for a really good purpose. Forgive them if they don't believe that the government is showing up on their doorstep to ask about the inflows and outflows from their personal accounts at a very de minimis level. And that is going to be used for only their good purpose. There is no transaction level data being um report that would be reported to the IRS. Can clarify what you mean by a bit more data then? When you said, I asked, is it just these two things? And you said, it's a bit more. What does a bit more mean? The um, proposal by the administration um, that was originally put forward um, requested some additional information, particularly about businesses and partnerships. Yeah. But wanna... there is no transaction level data for individuals being considered by this Congress. I want to point and out, look, I want, you I'll, know, why is it okay to, that we have businesses report um, wage and salary income or companies report dividends? I think or, real, um, reclaiming my time. I think there's some real concern about growing the amount of data that the federal government has proven itself incapable of handling correctly, or at some point ethically to the IRS. I heard testimony two years ago about how China was able to apprehend many of the protesters in Hong Kong. The way that they did that was mining financial data. Do you remember the Bank of America handing over records for January 6th? What about Chase? Yeah, JP Morgan's in on that. What about Wells Fargo? What about PNC? You see where they're going? Do you see that? Data, 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 data. We need a complete profile. 
So now if you have $600 coming into your account, we want to know where it came from and how you're spending it because we said so. Not by virtue of great law enforcement work and investigatory work, but instead by mining financial data about who was scanning their credit card in order to buy subway tickets to those particular locations. This worries Americans who are rightly concerned about a federal government that does not have their best interest at heart, but is telling them that for the greater good, they need to yield more privacy, more of their privacy, more of the things that they do in their personal accounts, because they might be able, we might be able to close the tax gap for other people who are cheating. With that, I'll yield my time. The gentleman's time has expired. Waters and ranking member McHenry, and I want to thank uh, Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen for being here today. I'm just going to just drive, dive right in. I, I do want to follow up uh, on a couple of things that have been talked about quite a bit this morning. The debt limit, first of all, I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of misinformation that circulates about this. So to be clear, if we suspend the debt limit, that's to, in, in, to allow for the enlargement of the debt. Yes, some of that for programs that have been in place historically, but much of that for uh, that would likely facilitate new spending. And I learned a long time ago from my dad not to sign blank checks. And so uh, it seems to me that if we suspend the debt limit, that's kind of like uh, signing a blank check. And uh, frankly, I'm not willing to participate in signing that blank check. If we had assurances that uh, that increase would go simply to cover the, the current built-in costs of operating the government, then uh, that might be a different discussion, but that's not the one we're having. And then, uh, Secretary Yellen, I want to follow up just for a second about the IRS reporting for bank account information. And I wonder in the administration's proposal, is there any allowance uh, in that proposal to defray the costs that banks and financial institutions would incur from reporting, from the added reporting expenses of providing this additional information to the, to the IRS? I don't believe it was in the administration's proposal, but... Um, if appropriate, we would be glad to work with Congress um, on on that to defray any expense. Oh, my gosh. I was talking. So let me restate his question. So what I want to know is we're going to be running these reports on people that have $600 in their back bank account, right? So that means the bank has to do extra work to report almost every fucking American. Therefore, I want to know, are you going to be paying the banks? that money that they're going to need to pay the employees to run these extra reports? That's the question. And she says, well, it's not in the original proposal, but if Congress wants us to pay them, then so be it. In other words, I will have to, via my tax dollars, pay my bank so it can tell the government where I spend my money. How does that sound to you? Sounds incredible. See what happens when you have a linguist in the house that can speak parcel tongue and explain this, like explain it, explain it. Hmm. His question. So will the people be paying their banks so that the banks can tell on them? You see? Oh, it's not an original proposal, but we're more than happy to work with Congress if that's what banks need. Banks are going to say, yeah, give me a big fat tax cut since I reported all these defectors and these bad people that are telling the government what to do. Well, I certainly know that the existing reporting requirements that banks face is uh, to be to be short on uh, onerous and uh, expensive. And of course, ultimately, their customers end up bearing that cost. Uh, 
I want to shift gears now. In May, the Treasury Department published an interim final rule to implement the coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery fund. Although the guidance was much needed, uh, I continued to hear from cities and county mayors across my district, many of which, uh, many of whom are here in, in town today, uh, across my district, asking for additional clarification and flexibility. I wrote a letter to you in July requesting this additional flexibility in the final rule. Secretary uh, Yellen, can you tell us when we can expect this updated guidance and if there will be increased flexibility included? Uh, we've tried to provide a great deal of flexibility. Chairman Powell, uh, Secretary Yellen, thank you for being with us here today. Um, out of the gates, Secretary Yellen, I, I'd just like to note that the proposal for bank account reporting uh, that you do not believe to be an invasion of privacy, I'd just like to be on the record that I believe that this would be uh, an invasion of privacy and I remain concerned with it. I'd like to jump over to, to debt to GDP. In a previous question, uh, you noted that uh, crossing the threshold of 100% of debt to GDP in the United States now roughly uh, 105% was not fiscally irresponsible. Is that correct? In 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 a in a comment to to Mr. Torres, we were he was examining. Uh, I, the I I believe we're we're in a place where um, we we can certainly bear the burden of the debt now and in the future. And, and you believe that because we're currently in a low inflationary environment with low interest rates. Is that accurate? That's right, but it. What, but what you, I'm assuming that interest rates, as the economy recovers, will move up to a more normal level in line with the forecasts of uh, many professional forecasters. And, and if in the in the event that the inflationary rate increased beyond that that current forecast by the the experts that you're speaking with, that would increase the the burden on the debt. Would that then become fiscally irresponsible to have a, a debt to GDP ratio over 100 percent? Well, it depends what happens to real interest rates in the economy. If they were to rise significantly, that, of course, poses a risk that we need to take into account. Um, I, I think we should absolutely take it into account. I'm very concerned with the spending proposals from the Biden administration and the impact that that would have in the event that we enter a, a more inflationary so, period yeah, where interest rates increase. I want to make clear that the proposals from the Biden administration are neutral with respect to um, the debt path that the projections that we have shown um, display. Pelosi gave oxygen to the idea that President Biden has the ability to mint a trillion dollar commemorative coin made of platinum, deposit in the Federal Reserve, and then use that to pay our bills. A number of other members have adamantly promoted this proposal to include Congressman Nadler and uh, just Tuesday, uh, my colleague across the aisle tweeted, hashtag mint the coin. Uh, Chair Powell, please tell me you think this idea is as ridiculous as it sounds. I, I really, that's not a question for me. Uh, I had a feeling you would say that. I just wanted to start there. Um, <laughs> Madam Secretary, uh, please tell me that this is not a legitimate policy proposal and that this is not something that we're considering. I believe that the only way to handle the debt ceiling is for Congress to raise it and um, show the, the world, the financial markets and the public that we're a country that will pay our bills when we incur them. I and really appreciate that response more than coin. you can possibly know. Thank you so much. Um, that cuts some of the next few things I was going to say short. Um, we are not going to print, to mint a trillion dollar coin we're not really, these are not serious policy proposals. Speaking of serious policy proposals, 
Um, I want to talk about what uh, Congressman Kustoff and Congressman Hollingsworth touched on, the idea of, uh, well, I guess it's changed, because as the Biden administration proposed it, it was originally all transaction histories of any account with more than $600 in or out of it. So you, you testified not 15 minutes ago that it, it now in reconciliation is not being considered. It is just the account balance. So sure. it's I changed. I, I never said that the administration ever proposed collecting detailed transaction data from individuals. That is never anything that the Biden administration contemplated. So you just said it's changed since the original proposal to what is now being considered. How There's does it change? A, a little, a few additional pieces of information were contemplated for businesses. Um, and and those are no longer being, so it's getting better. It's moving in the right direction because I've had a number of uh, banks and credit unions reach out to me. It's remarkable. Generally, they do not agree. They are in agreement that this is a terrible proposal. So I know that we're trying to figure out how to pay for $5 trillion of spending, um, but this is not, uh, just as Mint the Coin is not a serious policy proposal, this is not a serious policy proposal. This is a very serious policy proposal. We have a $7 trillion estimated tax gap. That then why don't they give us their money? They have portfolios stacked with cash. They made a shit ton during this COVID bullshit, which by the way, virus still not isolated. Nobody knows what it is, but apparently they think it's going to keep going till 2025 because that's how much rent they're going to have to be paying because people can't afford it. Get out of here. Get out of here. Now let's go back to that nice man that was explaining how banks can seize your money. We've never tried the idea of a bail-in, and few of us, few of us actually, actually talk about it. Although, you know, some may argue that a bailout is, is essentially the same thing, except we're using taxpayers' dollar to bail out these banks and companies. But we have never seen a true definition of a bail-in happen here in the United States, where essentially the banks will seize your deposits because, you know, they're failing and they're not doing their job. Now, one of the main reasons why a bail-in would truly not work here in the United States is due to the protection that we have with FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, the FDIC, if I'm giving you a summary, was enacted by the Congress to protect consumers as well as bank deposits from failing. Now, I will read what FDIC exactly does because FDIC does have a thing with people who misrepresent them. The FDIC is an independent agency created by Congress to maintain stability and public confidence in the nation's financial system. The FDIC ensures deposits and examines supervises financial institutions for safety, soundness, and consumer protection, makes large and complex financial institutions resolvable, and manage receivership. But in all seriousness, guys, the FDIC does its good job of protecting consumers' deposit up to $250,000. In fact, I've been doing a lot of research about what the FDIC does and doesn't do, well, maybe because what Daniel and I are up to right now. And this is a little bit of public announcement, and I've never talked about this on YouTube, but Daniel and I are actually in the process of wanting to buy a bank. <laughs> yeah, we're dead serious. This is the first time we're announcing, so you heard it first time right here on our YouTube channel. So basically, Daniel and I have been doing a lot of research on what the FDIC does and what they don't do to protect consumers and the banks. Furthermore, the FDIC does have a pretty extensive process that prevents banks from ever going to a true sense of a bankruptcy. In fact, what they do is they help banks facilitate a process where if the bank is failing, the bank would either sell their assets and their loans to other banks, 
or they would merge into other banks that are bigger and successful many, many times. That way, customers of these banks are generally protected from any negative consequences of a bank failing or merging with another bank that is obviously successful. So surprisingly, the US government did a pretty good job of putting together a lot of these fail-safe measures, although a lot of these measures have not been tested to the full extent. But remember guys, the FDIC does not ensure and protect everything and anything that the banks touch. In fact, the FDIC is pretty specific about what they do protect and what they don't. Generally, the FDIC ensures specific accounts such as checking accounts, savings accounts, certificates of deposits, and of course they have a limit of up to $250,000 per depositor. And the things that FDICs don't insure is mutual funds, stocks, bonds, life insurance policies, and annuities. Now, speaking of bonds, Although a bail-in in the United States is very unlikely, if there were to be a bail-in, I do imagine that bondholders are going to be the first to go. Because remember, I talked about how the bail-ins affected depositors and bondholders. So if there were to be a bail-in, I suspect the banks will go to the bondholders and say, hey, listen, we can't pay you. You know, There's not going to be enough money for us to pay you. How about this? We'll give you equity in stocks instead of the bond. So they'll essentially do a swap and term debt into equity so that the banks will essentially restructure their balance sheet. That way, banks would have less debt and have more ownership and equity in their balance sheet. And if there were to be a bail-in, remember, the FDIC has a limit of up to $250,000 per deposit. So if you have more than $250,000 in a checking account, savings, or CD, the pretty much anything above that $250,000 threshold, you're at risk of losing that money if there were to be a bail-in here in the United States. Unless Congress or the president steps in with an emergency power to raise that limit to, let's say, 500000 or even a million per deposit, theoretically, you could lose that money if you have more than $250,000. Or the opposite is true if the Congress and the president says, listen, we're in a dire emergency where all banks will fail. They may theoretically introduce a law or an emergency action to lower that limit down to maybe $50,000, where anything above $50,000 is at risk of losing or seizing due to a emergency bank bailout. So with this administration already thinking about taxing the rich as well as introducing you know, proposals as such as the IRS having access to your bank account, it's possible that the administration may say, they may just say, hey, let's go and take the FDIC insurance deposit amount up from $250,000 down to $100,000 because we sure don't want to pay for any kind of bailouts. So let's go and let the depositors worry about a bank bail-in. So you guys can see that there is a lot of barriers and obstacles if there were to be a bail-in to happen, but is it possible? Sure. And if the bank bail-in, again, were to happen right now, it would affect a lot of the individuals that have more than $250,000 deposited in their checking, savings, or CDs. So in theory, it can happen, but there's a lot of obstacles and hoops that the banks have to go through in order for a bank bailing to happen here in the United States. So I'm not ruling it out. I'm not saying that the U.S. economy is too big to fail, but there is a lot of protection and measures that exist to keep the economy running smoothly. So guys, to end this video, I'm going to give you a tidbit on how to protect yourself from a possible bank bailing if it were to happen here in the United States. Now, the first thing is to use our accelerated banking strategy. And yes, guys, I know we have tons of videos about it and I may be a little biased about it, but using our accelerated banking strategy, aka the HELOC strategy, your deposits are not with a checking account or a savings account. Your money will be tied up with the equity of your home, which means that if there were to be a bail-in that could happen, technically your money is not tied up with a deposit. It's tied up with debt. So it does give you a protection specifically for a bank bail-in if it were to happen. So if you guys want to learn more about our accelerated banking strategy, aka the HELOC strategy, the link is down below. In fact, we're going to give you guys a free copy of our book, Break Free From Your Mortgage, which talks about the accelerated banking strategy. So not only are we going to show you how to pay off your mortgage faster, uh, in third of the time, in third of the interest, 
We're going to show you how to also protect yourself from a possible bank bailing, mainly because your deposits, quote unquote, are tied up with equity instead of a true fashion checking or savings account. Number two is to becoming your own bank, also known as the infinite banking concept. Now, I did talk about how the FDIC does not insure life insurance policy. That's because your life insurance policy or your cash value is a private contract between you and the life insurance company. So if you become your own bank, essentially you grow your own cash value, you're banking on your own cash value, no organization can touch your cash value because again, that's a private contract between you and the insurance company. That way you can go and protect your precious hard-earned money somewhere where it's not part of the mainstream financial system, but it's part of a private contract between you and your life insurance company, and you can still have access to that money whenever you want to. So there we have it. Number three is if you have more than $250,000 cash laying around, well, I don't know what you're doing because inflation is eating away. Your best bet right now is to invest in real estate and tying it up with a HELOC so that you still have liquidity when you need to. So if you have more than $250,000, what I would do right now is go and buy real estate. And I know that market's really hot right now, but it's significantly better than having your money erode away on inflation right now. So I would buy real estate buy some rentals, buy some investment properties, and I would tie it up with a home equity line of credit. That way, if you need that money out, when you need it to be liquid, you have the ability to do so. And another great way to hedge against a possible bailing because your money is not tied up with a deposit in a checking or a savings account. It's tied up with equity. And also you're collecting rent, you're creating cash flow and income through rental property investment. So those are some of the ways where you can protect yourself from a bank bailing if it were to ever happen, if that's something you worry about. But again, the, the odds of a bank bailing to happen anytime soon is rather low here in the United States. Uh, we do have measures and protection, but, but I'm not saying it's never going to happen. It could happen. It's still in the realm of possibility, but I don't think we're at a verge of it ever happening anytime soon. Right? Well, I don't think he foresaw what's coming. Now, um, I really like listening to this guy. Um, he has some really cool things. I know a couple of patriots that are fighting for their ability to provide a bank uh, that is insured and make sure that it is private and away from all these things. Uh, but um, they're really struggling to get that off the ground. So let's just take a quick break and watch the new Tom McDonald video. Let's go. He's going to be fine. Lately, USA is getting scarier. Half of the Americans I see all hate America. They hate the cops doing their best to take care of us and kneel for the flag and salt the soldiers that we're burying. I'm tired of the fishing and complaining. Why you living in America if all you do is hate it? You think it's brave to take a stand against the nation? Real bravery is dying for the right so you can say it. Dear America, what happened to Americans? Apparently no one's aware or cares that it's embarrassing. It's arrogance. Our greatest enemy was always slavery and terrorists. And now it's people in the country trying to burn the heritage. I can't help it, I just seem to see the world different It ain't Republicans or liberals, it's mental illness The internet is only interested in left opinion Cancel culture's got more power lately than the First Amendment If you don't like it, leave, we will not defund police We don't want no riots in our neighborhoods or in the streets We respect freedom of speech, we protect what we believe We don't want nobody dead, so please do not tread on me In America, the freedom ain't free In America, got soldiers dying overseas So America, America, 
Does anybody know what the hell happened to the Patriots? Lately, this nation is so ashamed and hating itself. Did everyone forget that people died to pay for this? Ungratefulness, United States gave everything they do just to help. I just want to celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. I don't need your help to understand it was a tragedy. Can I just be thankful for my country eating happily without you trying to kill me for the genocide and casualties? I can't help it, I just seem to see the world different It ain't black or white, it's conflict designed by the system I don't need your pronouns, all I see is men and women Kids are taking pills for fun while people can't afford prescriptions If you don't like it, go, hate it, then don't call it home We don't need no violence, got no time for all you radicals Screw the status quo, we're not animals I won't kneel for the anthem, cause the flag is what I'm standing for In America, the freedom ain't free In America, the soldiers dying overseas So America, you say what we believe My America, I won't have to take a knee Our freedom is the reason you can disrespect our flag If my stars and stripes offend you Then I'll help you back your backs America you can hate the government and still love the country The fundamental values of America are country Republicans and liberals are dumb to put it bluntly They're labels that they use to create chaos and corruption You can know the history and still be proud of where you're from Every flag around the world is covered in a little blood We started out United States divided is what we've become If home is where the heart is you should show America some love In America that soldiers dying overseas, so America You say what we believe, my America I won't ever take a knee My freedom is the reason you can disrespect our flag If my stars and stripes offend you Then I'll help you back your backs America Ooh, that was fire. Now I'm going to play an old clip. An old clip that was created by someone. America, are we really free? Pretty interesting. Because one thing that we constantly, constantly say, well, is America. We're free. The question is, are we really, though? Think about it. As Americans, we should have freedom of speech. We uh, should have um, the ability to do anything we want. We should have the ability to pray to whoever we want. We should be able to wear whatever we want. We should uh, be able to walk wherever we want unless we can't walk, right? But that's not the case. We don't really own our homes. The city does. I mean, we can get down to the basics because they do. Uh, they have the right to take it away from you if they feel the need to do so and buy it from you at a dirt cheap price or just take it. And they have to wonder, when did that come into play? Like, when was that slotted into your state, city, or county? What clown decided Jim and Barb have their house there, but we want to build a road and this is how we're planning it. So we're going to take their house and we can so when we can't, so let's make it so that we can. So then they don't go after Jim and Barb's house yet. They don't tell people about the city plans. What they do is they quietly pass a municipal law where they all agree that in times of eminent domain, they can come in. And because everyone was so busy with life, right? So busy with the debt that these people in elected office have 
burdened us with because, you know, we're giving away trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to foreigners. <laughs> and then they're enriching themselves too. Uh, look at all those big fat portfolios. Damn. Didn't know you can get into office and get rich. I mean, it's 194000 a year, but that doesn't translate into millions of dollars into stock portfolios. That makes absolutely no sense, right? I mean, how does that even happen? So that was a precursor. As you see, that was from February 4th this year, kind of revisiting the whole part of them taking and taking and taking. Now, I did tell you they're going to come for your kids a long time ago. And a lot of people were like, ah, that won't happen. No, no, no. Well, today, California decided to mandate the vaccine for children to be able to enjoy an educational institution. Not only that, uh, the nurses that filed a lawsuit against New York State for mandatory vaccines were declined. And if you, re if you read uh, their uh, request, it was good. But I believe they should have taken the other angle. And that's the angle we're going to take going into SCOTUS. Because, um, you know, I'll tell you a little quick story how out of the box things are. So, okay, you know, it's not fair because it's me and I'm a bit of an upgrade. <laughs> but I, I think I've said this before. I, I walked into a lab. Eric is his first name. Shit, I forget the professor's name. He's still there. He's investigating, um, you know, the apoptotic cycle to help combat cancer, right? And as you walk in, he has this wall where he has sketched out over the years with thousands of students that have gone through his hands uh, through the university. Um, tons of pathways, cell signaling pathways. And as I walked by, yeah, because I'm good with patterns, but as I walked by, I quickly said to the professor, oh, this is a mistake. You missed the the I kappa kappa beta pathway down here. And, you know, because we have the nitrous oxide. And so if you put it there, that's a success. So I just set it on the whim and just kept walking because my brain was processing what I was seeing. So, you know, 12 months down the line, he got a shit ton, millions of dollars, obviously, for that research uh, to look at the nitrous oxide um, avenue. And he had said, oh, you should come on and see. And I said, oh, no, because then I'll have blinders. And I, and I say this with uh, the most love possible. When we are experts, nitric oxide, not nitrous oxide, my braces I try to pronounce things correctly, but at times, so I apologize. Um, um, the point is, is that when you're an expert, you see things with those eyes. A shrink will always see their interactions with people as if they're shrinking them. A, an artist will always see things with um, vibrant colors and from a perspective of fairy dust and whatever, right? So when you tackle a problem... You should have people that are outside of the box, that think outside the box. I, I feel that God has brought all the right people around all our efforts, lawyers that have the um, ability 
to wordsmith correctly and use the proper structure that the law requires. But they're lawyers that allow their blinders to fall to see new pathways. I had a conversation with Patrick Byrne earlier today and he was like, you're up to 30 something states. It's 39 states now. 39 states out of 50 have filed writ of mandamuses. And I said, yeah, and I'm so grateful for that Arizona Supreme Court for fucking that shit up because that's going to be a segue we'll use. And he was like, well, has anyone ever done the argument that you're proposing? And I said, no. And he goes, what? Well, who's crafting it? And I said, well, we have some amazing people in the Tory Says groups, like incredible geniuses in that group that are so specialized because everyone has their talent. We've got lawyers, we've got nurses, we've got doctors, we have engineers, we have artists, we have cartoonists, right? We have singers, right? We have, oh my gosh, the best waitresses ever that are probably the best people readers. Let's just put it down that way. Psychologists, right? We have everything. We've all come together. Imagine how powerful we are when we join the good things. Or we have people that just make generators for a living. If our power goes out, we know who to call. You know, these are, these are people that have come together. And when you use the eyes of many, oh my gosh, the problems go away. Again, think of it this way. A room, 10 people, all khakis, all think the same, all walk the same, all have the same beliefs. They've been cookie cuttered. And then a room with 10 people, all completely different. All pray to different gods, have different perspectives, different shoes, different clothes, different lifestyles. And they, those two rooms both get a problem. The room with the khakis may give you a solution and it'll be one. The other room will have a billion solutions and they'll fight and they'll attack and they'll this. And in the end, they will have the most glorious answer. So a lot of the things that we're doing right now as a people, as Americans, taking back our nation has never been done before in that manner. Back then it was guns, knives, and fuck them. Let's, let's slay their throats in the middle of the night, Christmas Eve, while we cross an icy river. Okay, we don't have to go that far, okay? We don't need to shoot people. We don't need to slay them, right? We have the ability to take it back creatively. There's no precedent for shit that's happening. We'll make the fucking precedent. It's always a first. And that's exactly what we're doing. I, I'll tell you, <clears throat> today was, you know, it's October 1st. So I got the keys for the house, right? That it's, it's, it's home for my, for my daughter. My other daughter will be there. I'm going to be there obviously cooking. So I've got a bedroom there too. Okay. Obviously no furniture. We got to figure that one out. But I, you know, I went there and in the morning, what you would think is something that has been in the works for three months and dealt with and signed and closed would have been perfect. It was a hot mess. It was a hot mess. Guys, I turned up and I can't, I'm not even going to repeat it, but let's just say it was the biggest, it was something unexpected. And rather than me blow completely, right? Rather than me just blow completely, I was like, give me the strength to allow things that I cannot control. And I was like, I just sat in my Tesla in that driveway, watched the shit show happen. 
and just recouped. And I said, you know, there's always a first. This has never happened to me in all my years. I've never seen something like this, but hey, it happened. And so there's always a first, right? Always a first. I want you guys to be brave because when you're brave, fear doesn't exist. It's like fear comes knocking on the door. And it's like, knock, knock, knock. I'm here, bitches. And then this brave ass gets up off the couch, goes to open the door. And guess what? There's nothing fucking there because fear doesn't exist when you're brave. Okay. Fear does not exist when you're brave. It does not. I was terrified. Like what I came across could have went side. You know, that's my kid's house. She's not here. I'm there to suppose help my eldest daughter, you know, finish up what she needs to because she can't physically be there. I felt like, oh, whoa, this can go really bad. Do I have to like go to this extreme to rectify this situation? Because everybody would have been like, you know, just call the cops. And it's like, I didn't know what to do. I just sat there in my car, smoked cigarettes and thought, you know, I'm just going to sit here a moment and I'm going to bitch, but I'm going to focus because it's got to <laughs> be, it's never happened before. So I think that approach helped me rectify the really shitty situation. <laughs> I'm just saying it was, it was comical. Um, it was comical, but whatever, I didn't let my daughter down. So that's what matters. Um, uh, so <laughs> It was comical. So I want you guys to know that sometimes we have to take it with humor. We have to take it with, you know, stride and we have to really keep our heads up. We have to remember that we're in control. We have the power, not them. They're not in power. We are. And the more you focus on that, the more you understand just how incredible it is what you're doing. Anyway, so shitty days going by and I finally finish just an hour before my show, everything. And in the middle, I had to print a shit ton of paperwork out, drop it at the courthouse, which I did. And I shouldn't have have done that because I should have been able to file that electronically. And I still haven't been that afforded that. So I've had to spend over $700 just to print so that I can take a massive box and drop it. And I apologized to the clerk and I said, you were here uh, when I came here at the beginning of the week when I filed this. He's like, they didn't rule on it yet. They said they were going to do it. And I said, no. So I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to fucking scan over 2000 documents. Here you are. And I did that and got my kid from school and fed her, right? I'm just saying, and dealt with a really shitty situation. But in that situation, my best moments today, watching these incredible videos from all of you so proud of, I'm like, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. And I spontaneously just started to tear, not because I was sad, but I was like so happy. I don't know if you guys are as proud of yourself as I am of you, but it is like the most amazing thing to see people getting together like that and changing the world like that. I mean, it's just so incredible. So incredible. I, I don't think you guys realize just how big what you're doing is so huge. So huge. It will be talked about for many years to come. It is 
the most incredible feat of bravery. When I saw that it was like, you know, I was just aiming for 26. Guys, we have like 39 states filed. Like that is no small feat. That is no small feat. That's incredible. So I'm going to play one of those videos because the other one's an MOV and I can't play it. I want you guys to see it. How awesome was that? How awesome was that? Tell me how awesome was that? Seeing them smile and being so incredibly brick. They did it. They're like, you know what? No, we're doing this. We're freaking doing this because it's our country. We're going to take it back. And that's the way it goes. That's what matters in the end. What you do. Yeah, there's a shit ton of problems in our nation. Shit ton of everything. But it's all about what we do. Here's South Carolina. Here we are doing patriotic shit with our friends. Going in the drop box. No getting it back now. How amazing is that? See, these are amazing feats. These are things that should make you understand just how much power the people yield. And you know what should tell you that you yield that much power? 39 states have filed rate of mandamuses. And not one mainstream media channel has talked about it. Do you see how that works? Do you see how you can tell who's dangerous? Do you see how you can tell who is dangerous? That's what's incredible. I really, um, I'm, if once we finish this, documentary, which is so hard to stay, stay on task, you guys, because we've got so much stuff to do. Like even before my case with Dominion, like next week I have to file. Oh, next week, by the way, on my federal case that I dropped off 2000 pages for, well, I'm supposed to be going down to, I, I have court on Monday. It's a discussion hearing, right? Which is pretty interesting because that doesn't really happen. So that's weird. The judge did it. So it's like, all right, let's do it. Um, so that's pretty awesome. Um, so Monday, we'll see how that goes. And then um, Monday, Tuesday, I need to file a brief for the amended um, motion that I did, which is pissing off a lot of lawyer friends of mine. There's a guy, I'm not going to say his full name, Paul. Amazing. Like this guy, I want to hug him. I want to kiss him. I want to give him so much of a He's such a fucking good lawyer, right? But he hates me. Cause I don't, he's like, no, this is how you went. I don't, I don't want to win the traditional way. <laughs> he did so much good that I'm going to use, gave me so much guidance that I'm going to use, but not yet. Okay. Not yet. Because he's such a patriot. He's like, no, I want you to win. And it's like, no, let's just, I want to do it. But that's not how you win. This one will get you a segue in. I'm going to do it later. Right now. I want pants to go down. See, I don't do things to merely win. I do things to make pants drop. See, pants are going to be dropping quick. Did you guys notice that my TRO was thrown out and in the state of Louisiana, 
they cited my TRO being dropped. Do you understand that the judges are talking amongst each other? Guys, I can't wait to fucking put that shit up in SCOTUS just to demonstrate how fucking disgusting they are. You see, this is the good stuff. This is the really good, good stuff. You let them pull their pants down because guess what? We're paying attention. Louisiana judge pulled their pants down. That law firm that was selling like ambulance chasing to school board, they pulled their pants down. See that, that right there tells you how dangerous you are. When they're doing that circle reporting, remember how did they do that seal dossier? Circular reporting. This is circular judicial bullshit. Okay. <laughs> There's circular, <laughs> circular. You said it. I said it. You said it. I said it. like Arizona totally fucked up. They gave us the in. I, like I said, like a Phoenix, we will rise. Thank you, Arizona. Cause these are all the things that we're getting from that state. We got all the dirt there. The messed up elections, the disenfranchising, the corruption, the the buys, the pedos are getting pulled down. Everyone's looking at all of them with a tiny, tiny scope, right? Super. We're looking at you down to the Armstrong level. So, you know, every single failure we have is a win. May not be for you the way you wanted it, but it's a win in a different way. Like Arizona failed, but no, it was a win. When does a Supreme Court work outside of the scope of Article 3? Remember, Justice Clarence Thomas said, well, judges aren't doing their, you know, they're doing much more than what Article 3 says, and this is why the courts are the most dangerous. He said that not even a fortnight ago. Hmm. And then today, considering that Kavanaugh is overseeing our district, he suddenly gets COVID. Sotomayor kicks back the New York State thing saying, nope, goes to the state because the way they fought it was giving them the out through the 1905 case. And they allowed the state to make the decision. Again, she did well. I know. It's like, why would she do that? She did well. It was good. It was okay. Because, you know, now these people in New York should refile that shit and ask Kavanaugh or, or Clarence Thomas. If she refuses, you could go to someone else. You always have that someone else. Remember that. You have to go to the person of your district, but then you go to one of your choice. So let's say, for example, Kavanaugh can't take on mine and they assign it, I don't know, to like Roberts or something, right? Right, John? Then, and he's like, fuck you, Tori. I'll just take and say, well, I want to submit it to Clarence Thomas. There we go. Booyah. So there's always remedy. There are always fail-safes <clears throat> in all of these things. So I want you to understand just how they're imploding right now. Now you're going to say, what? What do you mean imploding? Listen. When you're coming for someone's kids, it's a big problem. We heard the Secretary of Education not want to admit that the parents have the primary role of care. My child is in my care and custody, right? 
It's almost like my property. It sounds bad, but it is. I created that human being inside of me. I brought it to life and I am responsible for that human being. Because if I take that human being and throw it out the window, you put me in jail. If I take that human being and beat it, you throw me in jail. If I abandon that human being, you throw me in jail. So uh, obviously I am by default responsible for that human being. Therefore, I don't see how I do not represent it. When some kid fucks up, it's the parent's fault. If the kid's bad in school, social services comes and questions your parenting. Stop it. Stop it. Anyway, so now they're coming for the kids. And California took the dive. Of course they can because they created the laws for it. Wait, it's okay. And you're going to see how. Actually, I think we should take a step back. Before we get to Gavin Newsom, I think it's more important to watch something from a few years ago. Hold on a second. We talked about death panels. We talked about, you know, the right to die, right? We talked about it. But one thing we didn't talk about is how much Obamacare has removed your rights as a parent and conveyed them to the child in the state. To the point where suicide or self-termination is put forward to the child. Stop, Tori. No, that doesn't happen. Oh, really? You're Cinderella. Juliana Snow has a neuromuscular disease that's slowly taking her life. She can't walk or breathe on her own or even use her hands to play with glitter. There's no such thing as too much. There's no such thing as too much. Okay. The next time Juliana gets a cold or any infection, her body will be too weak to fight it off. What do the doctors tell you is likely to happen if she were to get another cold? She will most likely die if she gets another cold. You okay? Juliana's doctors presented her parents, Steve Snow and Michelle Moon, with two devastating options. Juliana could die at home in her pink princess room, made comfortable, surrounded by family. Or she could go to the hospital, where treatment likely couldn't save her, or even if it did, she would likely have a terrible quality of life. Everyone told us there is no right answer. So Michelle and Steve asked Juliana something almost no parent could even fathom. When she was just four years old, they asked her what she wanted to do, go to the hospital or go to heaven. You blogged about it. Yes. So let's take a look. Okay, so me. Juliana, if you get sick again, do you want to go to the hospital or stay home? Juliana, not the hospital. Me. Even if that means you will go to heaven if you stay home? Juliana, yes. Me. And you know that mommy and daddy won't come with you right away. You'll go by yourself first. Juliana, don't worry. God will take care of me. Me. And if you go to the hospital, it may help you get better and let you come home again and spend more time with us. I need to make sure you understand that. Hospital may let you have more time with mommy and daddy. Juliana, I understand. Juliana told her parents she hated the hospital, especially a procedure called nasotracheal suctioning. So basically you stick a tube with a su on a suction machine and you stick it up the nose, down past the tongue, back into the throat, as deep as you can go, and you start suctioning. Um, if given the choice of me or one of the other respiratory techs, she would usually ask for me to do it. Was that hard to do? Yeah. Could you watch her go through that again, do you think? If I had to, I'd do it. Would it save her life to do it again if she were to get an infection? 
I don't think so. Michelle and Steve say when the time comes, they'll honor their daughter's wishes to die at home and go to heaven over the hospital. Some parents would, wouldn't have consulted a child so young. They would have said, we're the parents. So you, you asked your daughter at, at the age of four, what do you think? What should we do? Juliana had to go through hundreds of rounds of nasal tracheal suctioning. She knows exactly what that was. She was awake for every single one. She knows what that is. So I think she has a right. I think she has a say. Juliana's doctors told CNN she's an exceptionally wise five-year-old, and they support her parents' decision to carry out her wishes. For now, Juliana's enjoying her life with her parents, her big brother, Alex. And her princesses. Are Elsa and Anna, I forget, are they cousins or... They're sisters. Oh, they're sisters. That's Anna. It's Anna. Oh, it's Anna. I said Anna. It's yes. Anna. I'm sorry. <laughs> she forgives you. <laughs> what are your What are your realistic hopes for her for the rest of the time that she does have left? Be comfortable. Be happy. Feel loved. What's gotten you through it? Faith. Whoever you may pray with, wherever you may be, I can guarantee for certain God listens to you and me. Faith that she will be in a better place when her time comes and, uh, and we can go join her someday and this will all pass away. What, what do you want people to remember about Juliana? Her heart. She is just um, so much love. Just so much love. It's just so sad. Elizabeth joins us now. Juliana talked about, about what she thinks heaven will be like. What did she say? Right. Her mother had a discussion with her about that, Anderson. And her mother says that what they discussed is that in heaven, she won't be in a wheelchair. She'll be able to run around outside. She'll be able to play. She'll be able to eat. None of which she can do right now. And her doctors are supportive of the parents' decision? They are. I interviewed several of her doctors and nurses, and all of them were supportive of the choice that her parents have made. I want to read you actually two of them. Her nurse in the intensive care unit, who was with her over several hospital stays, said, there is no cure for her, and I want her living and dying in her princess room at home, surrounded by her family, not by the cold technology of the hospital. And then her pulmonologist, Dr. Danny Shaw, told me, for her, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. She doesn't have a long time left to live. I have the utmost faith in her mother and in her father. They're phenomenal parents, and they have her best wishes at heart. Now, that was hard for a lot of us to watch, and we understand why the parents would ask the child, and I agree, right? Someone should have the choice when the time comes, no matter how young they are, no matter how old or senile, right? We agree with that. But here's what happened. This segment will come again. Circle back around. For things that you wouldn't imagine. Now we've talked about abortion, but have we talked about infanticide? Yes, we have. And so... We can all agree to disagree with the methods and modes, but infanticide is a real, real thing. So I thought I would mention it now. It's only going to come later for those of you that will um, remember this because you'll be like, wait a minute, I know this. 
This is going to be how we circumvent later. This will be later, later, later. Abortion laws. Infanticide was not just... <laughs> it's really bad. So a child can choose where to die, but not to die. A parent cannot put an infant to death because it will it's sick or it's deformed or has a disease, right? We can choose where to die, but we can't choose to die, um, <laughs> right? I'm just pointing that out. I thought I would drop it in a more random but very specific date uh, for you guys to know about in the future. So that's why I wanted to start there. But having said that, speaking on children, let's go to California so we can wrap this up. This is quite interesting. We're going to watch CNN's take. Moments ago, the governor of California, the COVID-19 vaccine will be added to the state's current list of immunizations required to attend school. We're talking about K through 12 schools. And here's what we know. This requirement will begin the term following full FDA approval for grades grouped at K through 6 and then 7th through 12th. Right now, as you know, Pfizer's vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds is still emergency use authorized. And so this will apply to students at both public and private schools. It will be subject to exemptions for both medical reasons and personal beliefs. But this is a, a first in the country. And it comes on the heels of the governor's recall election, a recall that began over his COVID-19 restrictions. So let's get to the governor, California Governor Gavin Newsom is joining us live now. Thanks for making time for us, Governor. This is a big announcement. Nice Why is this the right move right now? I think we're all just exhausted by this. We want to get this pandemic behind us. And while we've made great progress, California, 84 percent of Californians that are eligible received at least one dose. We have the lowest case rate in America, it's not good enough. And we have a cohort 12 to 17 right now. Uh, we're only 63 and a half percent of our kids have received at least. You heard him. He said we have a cohort, a cohort. What is that? An experimental group of children, meaning all of the children that are in, you know, adoption centers, foster care, you know, oh, juvenile centers and all those Damn parents that are volunteering their children as if they're uh, the cohort, 12 to 17. You heard him say it. They're experimental subjects. He said it. Pay attention. They tell you everything if you're listening. It's one dose of vaccine, and we think this will accelerate our efforts to get this pandemic behind us. You point out, though, California is moving in the right direction. COVID cases are declining right now in your state. Almost 70 percent of eligible. Or 12 to 17 right now of Californians that are eligible received at least one dose. We have the lowest case rate in America. It's not good enough. And we have a cohort 12 to 17 right now. Uh, we're only 63 and a half percent of our kids have received at least one dose of vaccine. And we think this will accelerate our efforts to get this pandemic behind us. You point out, though, California is moving in the right direction. COVID cases are declining right now in your state. Almost 70 percent of eligible Californians are fully vaccinated. That, of course, is 12 and older. Eighty four percent have had at least one dose. So what makes you think the current strategy isn't enough? Because we've been humbled over the last year. I mean, every time we take our eye off the ball, we think we've got this and we move on to the next issue or challenge. Uh, we have a new mutation, a new variant that comes out, new variables uh, that come out. And look, I'm mindful of the seasonality of this. And while California has withstood this last 
wave. Uh, we are concerned about the fall and into the spring of next year. And so good enough never is. Uh, with this disease. And we know that people are still dying, 700,000 Americans. We know that kids are being infected. Kids are ending up in our hospital system. Uh, I have four young kids. I can't take this anymore. I'm like most parents. I want to get this behind us, get this economy moving again, make sure our kids never have to worry about getting a call saying they can't go to school the next day because one of the kids or a staff member were tested positive. I hear you as a parent to two young kids who aren't eligible to be vaccinated just yet. I, I'm feeling your pain right now. Five California school districts, though, have already you know, been leading the way. They've been out front requiring the vaccine already just this week. San Diego Unified School District, which is the state's second largest district, unanimously voted to approve a vaccine mandate that all eligible students have to be vaccinated, as well as the staff in that district. But there was opposition to this. No surprise, of course. Let's look at what happened at a recent county board meeting there. Your children and your children's children will be subjugated. They will be asked, how many vaccines have you had? Have you been a good little thing? Hail Fauci! Hail Fauci! What are you expecting yeah. in terms of that kind of you know reaction potentially over this new statewide mandate? Look, we already mandate 10 vaccines. In so many ways, this is the most, uh, well, this is a significant amount announcement, but it's probably the most predictable announcement. We require for mumps and measles and rubella and so many other diseases. We require vaccinations. And yet there's something about this disease. This is the only vaccine that you're not allowed to question. You can't say no to this one. Parents have said no to other ones, right? The anti-vax moms with their doctor's notices, uh, you know, the people that have had uh, bad repercussions from them, all of that, that's been done. So it's so weird that this one, they're focused on more than anything. Make sure everyone gets it. Listen to what he says. He says, you're already mandated for other things. That's because the people were fucking sleeping. You can't mandate shit. It's become so polarized mm -hmm. uh, and so divisive. And it's, it's tragic. I mean, I, my heart goes out to the people protesting that they are led with such fear and anxiety, such disinformation, the misinformation, very intentional, uh, and some just naively receiving it. And so, look, we have to remind people that this is well-established territory for our kids for decades and decades. Our kids and parents uh, have been bringing our kids into the doctor's office or getting them to the school nurse and getting vaccinated, keeping them healthy, keeping them safe. Uh, we just are adding one additional thing to the list so we, the rest of us can move beyond this pandemic and this disease and get the economy moving and keep our kids back in person for instruction, which every parent, even those protesting, want to see. But so many parents, and maybe it's a minority, but there's still enough of them, and they are allowed minority who don't even want mask mandates, yeah. right? Last month, an elementary school teacher near Sacramento was hospitalized after a parent allegedly attacked them over mask mandates. Who are you expecting to enforce yeah. this? Well, you know what? If you want to attack someone, attack me. Uh, I was the first governor of the country to require masking for all our public schools. I was the first governor of the country to require uh, vaccine verifications and or testing. And now we're leaning in again. You want to go after someone, go after me. Don't go after school board members. Don't go after these innocent folks that are just trying to do the right damn thing. I mean that. We're better than that. Our kids are watching. Kids are watching the adults and they're mirroring our behaviors, not what we say, but what we do. 
We're better than this. You've got a problem. Come after me. Stop attacking and antagonizing these public servants all across this country, not just across my state. They don't deserve it. Who, who has to enforce this? We all look, we have rules and regulations that are well established for enforcement for vaccines already. It's the same rules, same regulations, district by district. California is the largest school district in America, 1,025 different independent school districts, well-established rules and procedures, not only for vaccines and verifications and data collection, but also as it relates to staffing requirements. And there's rules and regulations for employment, conditions of employment. You have them. I have them. Well-established. They're consistent with what is already on the books. And to be clear for our viewers, in case it wasn't clear earlier, this at this point would apply to people 16 and older because that is the age group that has a fully approved vaccine at this point. And as you point out, younger people aren't eligible even for emergency use yet. It it is possible, however, that the Pfizer vaccine could be authorized for younger children ages 5 to 11 in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, though, there's a recent poll that found less than a third of parents of children in that age range plan to get their kids vaccinated as soon as it's available. I know you have young children. You brought it up under the age of 12. Do you plan to get them vaccinated as soon as they're eligible? And I have a 12-year-old, someone who just turned 12, and she's looking forward to getting vaccinated. That We anticipate, not surprising, the FDA approval of 12 uh, to 17-year-olds. That will be the first cohort, first phase in uh, with this new, new rules. 5 to 11 will take a little bit more time. And over the course of time, you saw this, even with the 12-plus cohort, those numbers are not dissimilar. They start to build more trust, confidence. You saw, even with those uh, polling numbers, 5 to 11, uh, that parents were looking forward to FDA approval, not just the emergency youth authorization. So I think as this gets socialized, as we lean in, as more states do what California is doing, I think you're going to see those numbers change, that anxiety change. But that's also, in closing, a big part of our responsibility to reach out to those parents. Uh, A lot of good folks out there still with a lot of anxiety, particularly when it comes to our kids, and remind them of all the vaccines their kids are already. Remind them of all the poison they've already taken, right? This is how you move forward. Remind them. When I said that they're going to be coming for your kids, I wasn't joking. See, in my future, well, my past that has been altered was from the future looking back. There was a, an attempt to create a hive mind, which failed. It was tested on children first to be able to upgrade them, but they all supposedly failed, sort of, maybe. And that's because, I've mentioned this before, what you can do in a laboratory where you control the temperature, the interactions, the environment, you will be able to achieve that that you want. But when you create something that isn't supposed to be created, and you put it into nature, two things happen. It weaponizes against you, or God kicks in, and, well, then you're fucked, and you're unable to take it out. So on that note, I'll see you guys on Sunday. Uh, You know, I mean, it's Friday. Why not watch a trailer of something that I wanted us to watch, but Amazon doesn't have it available. Super old school. God bless everyone. Enjoy this preview. Whenever it's available, we'll watch it. But think of it. 
in the context. You were right about its learning potential. No, I was wrong. I think he's learned a lot more than I ever thought possible. What's your name, son? My name is Daryl. And what you doing up in these parts? Hmm? I don't know. Physically, he's 100%. But he is suffering substantial amnesia. He doesn't remember parents, home, anything like that. He handles it well, though. So you can certainly go ahead. We'll find a family that wants to look after you until uh, your own folks come and take you home, okay? Howie came by the site today, and they have a kid at the center. He's a boy. He's nine or ten years old. I don't get it. You remember how to read. You remember your name. Stuff like that. But you don't remember your family, your school. You've got brothers or sisters. Doesn't make sense. I love Daryl. I really do hope we'll be able to adopt him. It's just it doesn't seem to need anybody. All knowledge is learning and therefore good. Daryl, come on, let's go. What is this? Daryl's an experiment in artificial intelligence. He was never meant to leave here. And he was certainly never meant to be with people. Holy shit. He's a robot? Doctor? What am I? They want to know how you do that. As a matter of fact, so do I. Well, I can sort of read what a computer is doing. You can control it. Welcome to Cassie. Look at him! He's just a little boy, flesh and blood. Thanks to Dr. Mulligan's mistakes, we now know a lot more about Daryl's potential than we did before. Baseball, friendships. Maybe we need an adult version of this prototype. Youth Life Form Project as of now is growing. B-A-R-Y-L goes to scrap. I'm still My faith will stay. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Sovereign. 